Ready? Born ready. It is here, another episode of your favorite political podcast, Where the Party At? I'm your host, Saba Log, and thank you, as always, for tuning in and rocking with us. Let's get started on this week's show. First up, with just a couple of weeks before early voting starts, there's been a bit of drama in the Georgia Democratic Party. What's happening? Well, Alicia Thomas Searcy, who is the Democratic nominee for Education Secretary, said that she's calling it how she sees it. And that is that Alicia says she's getting left out of a coordinated effort, a coordinated campaign to get the entire Democratic slate elected. Now, you may have recall in a few episodes ago, I mentioned that Stacey Abrams has put together something called One Georgia. That is the Democrats' effort to elect candidates up and down the ballot. So what usually happens in these kinds of big elections is the top of the ticket is seen as that rising tide to help elect lesser-known candidates or maybe those who don't have the same type of fundraising prowess as someone like Stacey Abrams does. So here's what Alicia posted on her Facebook page, and I quote, Friends and supporters, many of you have asked me why I have been ostracized and excluded from flyers, photos, social media posts, and endorsements from organizations connected to One Georgia, Stacey Abrams' campaign. Unfortunately, I do not have an answer. Although the campaign is called One Georgia, The actions of the group nor the candidate seem to align with the name. I encourage you to inquire directly with them. She goes on to say, yes, it's frustrating. And for months, actually years, I have been silent about being treated this way. But if you know me, you know that God's favor is on my life. What I know for sure is that no person and no organization can take away what God has for me. Spoken like a true black woman. She also goes on to add this point. And again, I quote, to my Democratic friends in leadership, because rank and file Dems don't operate this way, we are supposed to be the party of the big tent, the party to embrace diversity, and the party that stands up for those who were left out. As we seek to lead at the highest offices of our government, we must operate from these values starting in our own backyard. I ask you to stand with me, speak up, stop the silence, end quote. So that is what she posted on Facebook. So again, the backstory here is that a lot of Democrats have remained upset with Alicia over her stance on charters. This dates back from years ago. And so for many Democrats, they see charter schools as something that sucks up the resources and talent away from traditional public schools. But Republicans have continuously campaigned on being for school choice. Now, I will say this about this whole saga. Again, we are just a couple weeks away until early voting starts. 
Republicans don't play these kinds of games. When David Perdue got walloped by Brian Kemp in the gubernatorial primary, he immediately the next day licked his wounds and endorsed Kemp. So even if you're a Democrat who believes that Alicia Thomas Searcy is a dino, Democrat in name only, and you want to win in November, you need her on your team. This to me just sounds like absolutely petty politics. And again, it's ridiculous to be having this public debate with just a few weeks until voting starts. All right, next up, Stacey's Big L. So a federal judge has ruled to uphold Georgia's election laws and what is really a big blow to Stacey Abrams organizations and the fight that began right after the 2018 election as it late relates to voting rights and voting access. So a judge, again, just ruled against Abrams organizations on every count that they put out. So four years ago, when Stacey lost the election to Kemp, she raised the concern that thousands of voters were purged from the voter rolls. She also talked about something called exact match. And that is when you're required to provide ID verification, even if there's a minor inconsistency in the spelling of your name. Now, for folks who were flagged with this exact match issue, 70% of them were black and others a lot were Asian or Hispanic. So imagine if on your voter ID, your name is spelled, your last name is Long, like mine, but it's spelled L-E-N-G instead of L-O-N-G. So I would have to provide additional verification so that they would know that it is indeed me. So this exact match was one of four key counts that was part of this lawsuit. Now, Stacey's folks did get a bit of a win in 2019 when the same federal judge ruled that the state had to reinstate 22,000 inactive voters who had been removed. They had to put them back on the voter rolls. But that 22,000 was out of 300,000 people who had been removed from the voter rolls for one reason or another. Now, of course, Governor Brian Kemp and Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger are certainly thrilled by the court's hearings, the court's ruling. Here's what Stacey Abrams had to say about that judge's decision. And again, a quote here. The court's order explicitly lays out the hazards of a system rife with barriers that disproportionately impacted black and brown people. As governor, I will expand the right to vote, not attack voters as they are as they exercise the prerogatives of citizenship. I will defend minority voters, not bemoan their increased power or grow frustrated by their success. End quote. If you heard me on Political Breakfast last week, one thing I talked about is the fact that Georgia is now a majority minority state. And so what Stacey is saying in her statement here is that she believes that Republicans are acting out of concern over the fact that there's an increase in minority voters and will continue to be an increase in minority voters. And that is what's determining how they are approaching voting rights and voting access in our state. 
All right. So keeping with the Stacey theme, a capital B Atlanta last week held a 30 minute Q&A with the candidate and talked about a few issues. She was asked a couple of questions about housing. One was specifically about how to boost home ownership in Atlanta for black families. Take a listen to her response. And we're also going to play another clip. And I will just warn you that Stacy is loquacious. So her responses are going to be a little bit lengthy. But take a listen to this first one about home ownership in Atlanta for black families. You're black owners of those houses. And so my responsibility first is to expand the Georgia Dream Program, which allows the state of Georgia to help with home ownership and home home purchasing, making sure we help you with your down payment, with your financial literacy about home ownership, which is, diff- which is different than general home, I mean, sorry, general financial literacy, making sure that we are doing our best to ensure building better housing and more starter homes in the state of Georgia by using LIHTC, which is a low income, basically it's a an income tax or it's a tax incentive program that we can use to encourage more affordable housing. I want more of those affordable housing units to not only be apartment units, but to be home ownership opportunities. The state should be a partner in expanding access to home ownership. And the state can be a partner in making sure that we incentivize developers to build more of those starter homes. Georgia is looting starter homes at an extraordinary rate because of -of out-of-state builders and out-of-state developers who are buying up those houses and jacking up the prices. And if we, going back to the very first question that William asked, if we do our jobs, of making sure that local governments have more control over inclusionary zoning, we can make certain that more of those starter homes are actually created, available, and then through the governor's office, we can make certain that your ability to use the pay that you're earning that makes you eligible for home ownership, we can close the gap to make sure more Black families can not only buy their homes, but grow their wealth and grow their opportunity. She was also asked about how she would support rural Georgia. And I'm highlighting this question because so often it feels that in Metro Atlanta, we don't really pay enough attention to the rest of the state. And the same can be said in the inverse, in that in rural Georgia, there's not a lot of an understanding or emphasis on what's happening in Atlanta. And we really do need each other if we're going to be a state that thrives So take a listen to what she had to say about this. So I encourage everyone to go to my rural revitalization plan. It's on my website. It's very comprehensive. But here's the shorthand. Let's start with Medicaid. So I know people are like, wait, how's Medicaid expansion going to do this? One of the challenges in South Georgia is that they've lost more hospitals than any other region of the state. They're the least likely to have doctors. Well, can you imagine setting up a business or setting up a factory when if someone gets hurt, you've got to go two hours to get to help? No one's going to bring a company there. No one's going to locate there. We know that if we expand Medicaid, Medicaid expansion, those millions of dollars, billions, it's $3.5 billion. When the money comes to the state, it goes to where the uninsured are. And so if you're in Cordell, if you're in Buena Vista, if you're in McIntyre, if you're in Screven County, the money comes to where the people are because that's where the doctors need to be. That's where the healthcare needs to go. And where there's a doctor, where there's a nurse, where there's a hospital, there's going to be a cafeteria, there's going to be a caterer, there's going to be a pharmacist, there's going to be construction. So all of these jobs will follow. And in Georgia, that's 64,000 jobs. And this is absolutely true. When the state of New Jersey, under Republican, expanded Medicaid, they created more than 50,000 jobs. When Indiana, under Republican, expanded Medicaid, They created more than 30,000 jobs because of the size of Georgia and because of, sadly, how many people are uninsured. By expanding Medicaid, 
we will actually draw down the resources to create more than 64,000 jobs. And these aren't just healthcare jobs. These are jobs across industries. On top of that, I want to make certain that we are helping invest in family farms. We know that if you're a big farm, you can get all the help you need from the USDA. But for small farms, navigating the USDA might as well be like going to, to Mars. I want to create a $5 million family farm fund, which allows small farms to actually grow. And that means more people can stay where they are and grow opportunities there. I want to create an entrepreneur's learner's permit. So we have more people in South Georgia who can start their own businesses. But that also means we have to expand access to the Internet. And that's not just about laying broadband. It's also about making sure the Internet is affordable. We have so many small businesses in South Georgia that can't sell into Metro Atlanta because they can't get on the Internet reliably. This governor has had years to tackle this issue, and he refused to do so until Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, our two U.S. senators, sent billions of dollars into the state, hundreds of millions of which were able to be used for broadband expansion. But we know that right now that broadband expansion is not being equitably placed in black communities. And so I want more transparency. I want more equity. And I want to make certain that our small businesses can actually access those opportunities. And the last one is advanced energy. We know that climate change is real and that Georgia has the opportunity to take advantage of between 25 and 40,000 new jobs that are going to pay well and can be located in South Georgia because we have wind, solar, we have opportunities for high, for biomass, we have hydro. And so we need to locate many of those jobs in South Georgia. I have a plan to do so and we will have the resources because Georgia has the $6.6 billion surplus, which means we can make a balloon payment on investing in so much of our communities without increasing our taxes at all. All we have to do is have a governor who believes that we should be investing in the black and brown communities and we should be investing in South Georgia the way we've invested in the places that, like, that he likes. I want to invest in all of Georgia. That's why One Georgia is my mission. Okay, I know that was a, a long clip. One thing that she talks about here is pushing for Medicaid expansion. And I'm going to help help you understand why. So overall, about a third of the 100 million adults in the United States with healthcare debt owe money because they were hospitalized, right? And this is according uh, to a national poll that was conducted for the Texas Tribune. And of those folks, close to half of them half of them owe at least five thousand dollars. And then about 25% of them owe $10,000 or more. And so if you're going to have a conversation about rural Georgia and access to healthcare, you have to talk about Medicaid expansion and you have to talk about healthcare debt because it is a serious problem, not only in our state, but across the country. All right, next up, if you again listen to last week's episode, we talked about Governors Abbott and DeSantis sending migrants to Democratic cities like New York City, Boston, and others. And so now the question is, might they be coming to Atlanta? So Governor Abbott, again, who is the governor of Texas, he just had a political debate with his Democratic challenger, Beto O'Rourke. And this, this came up in the conversation. So take a listen to this clip from that gubernatorial debate. These migrants are being sent to states and cities with Democratic leadership. Why aren't these migrants being sent to so-called sanctuary cities in Republican-led states like New Orleans or, or Metro Atlanta? You have 30 seconds. So, again, because these cities of New York and Washington, D.C. and Chicago 
are so large and have the infrastructure that is available, they have the capability of accommodating the number of migrants that are being sent better than these other cities that you talked about. Uh, there will be other cities in the future that also will be on the receiving end of migrants because we will continue to have to move migrants because Joe Biden continues to allow more illegal immigrants to come into the state of Texas. So he says there will be other cities. I'm curious to see if he's waiting to find out what's going to happen with our election to determine if he's going to send migrants to Georgia or not. I'm sure Kemp will have some choice words for Governor Abbott if he does that. All right. Now, this is something I talked about, mm, gosh, I don't know, maybe a month or so ago. And this is about insider trading amongst members of Congress. So Democrats control the House, right? And the Democratic leadership is being accused of slow walking a bill that would stop what many would call, again, insider trading. And this is essentially congresspeople who are purchasing individual stocks. Now, Wall Street bets and other stock groups are known to track the stock purchases of members of Congress and their families. Now, you might recall during when COVID first happened, there were a number of elected officials, including at the time, our two senators, David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler, who were accused of purchasing stocks before information became public on just how bad we would expect COVID to be. So Democratic Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, she has just called out the House leadership and told them to act with urgency to push forward a bill which is bipartisan that she drafted in 2021, in January of 2021, that has dozens of sponsors, but they have been stonewalled. Now, initially, Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, said that she was opposed to such a bill. Her husband is in the finance industry. They are a wealthy family, very wealthy family. But after a lot of backlash, she said, okay, I'll, you know, I'll be quiet. But House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, who's also a Democrat, has said both publicly and privately that he is opposed to any such bill. Now, to be clear, it is not just the Democratic leadership that is opposing this. Republicans also broadly, or at least Republican leadership, are opposed to a provision that would ban Supreme Court justices from trading individual stocks. Please help me understand that. I, I don't get it. But here's what Abigail, the congresswoman, had to say. And again, a quote here. This moment marks a failure of House leadership and it's yet another example of why I believe that the Democratic Party needs new leaders in the halls of Capitol Hill, as I have long made known. Rather than bring members of Congress together who are passionate about this issue, leadership chose to ignore these, vo these voices, push them aside, and look for new ways they could string the media and the public along and evade public criticism. That is a pretty powerful quote. Again, it's clear that we have a issue of trust between the public and elected officials. Congress's approval ratings are abysmally low. I think they're in the single digits now at this point. And here's an opportunity to restore that trust, to do something that shows the public that, hey, we are going to put you first. This is a layup. It should be a layup. It's an easy opportunity 
to restore trust and say to the public, we get it, we understand. And, you know, here's how we're going to rectify this situation going forward. Because just because we're elected office doesn't mean that we have the right to have access to this type of information and capitalize on it. And you, general public, don't have that information. It's a shame. Could have been the party pooper easily. <laughs> All right. So something else I want to talk about. What is this? A black tax. So Bloomberg News just did this story on something called the black tax. And this is basically a tax or penalty and higher interest rates that black cities, black organizations pay simply yes for being black. Even if the financial profile of that city or that organization is the same as for a white one. So let me give you an example of this. So this was in the article. Shelby County, Tennessee, which includes the city of Memphis, is paying, according to reports in a, in a study, $5 million more each year in interest and bond payments simply because it has a high black population. And even worse, it is estimated that this quote-unquote black tax has cost the city $150 million since 1990. So again, here's something from the article. In a 2009 study, John Yinger, who is an economics professor at Syracuse University, his research found that with each one percentage point increase in a community's black population, they will see a one percentage point to 1.5 percentage point more likelihood of being given a lower bond rating, right? So this again means that they're paying higher interest, higher bond payments. This example is a city, but it's not just cities. This also is impacting HBCUs and other black institutions. Now, there was only one House committee hearing about this last year, just one. Now, I want you to listen to a snippet from that hearing. Alice's asked two questions. First, do HBCUs pay more in issuance fees versus non-HBCUs? Second, once HBCU bonds have been placed in the market, do they trade at lower prices or otherwise show evidence of discrimination by investors? The answer to the first question is yes, HBCUs pay about 20% more in underwriting fees, which are the ones that brokers sell or place with bond investors. This increases to 30% if we focus on states with historically high levels of racial animus, specifically in the U.S. Deep South. Now, the, the National League of Cities recently received some funding to look into this. And then also the Municipal Securities Rulemaking Board, and this is an organization that's subject to regulation from the Securities and Exchange Commission, they said that they will do the same. Now, for this article, they reached out to Bank of America, to Citigroup, and J.P. Morgan Chase. Now, these are three of the biggest municipal bond underwriters, and all of them declined to be interviewed for this article. They're all just keeping quiet. So while we as a society continue to have this conversation about equity, about reparations, about restoring trust between black people and those in power, this is an issue that clearly, clearly 
needs to be addressed. We know that Black folks have been and continue to receive higher interest rates despite their credit worthiness. They receive lower home appraisals despite the true value of the homes. We have seen this happen, yes, even in 2022. And this study and ongoing research about this are showing that this is happening even at the institutional level with local governments and then with our HBCUs. I think this is an opportunity for real bipartisan, right? And so if Republicans want to find a way to support and show that they care about getting black votes, here's a prime way to do that. It's a prime way for Democrats to say, hey, black folks, we listen to you. We understand what you're dealing with. Let's put forth some legislation that's going to rein in these bond makers and so that we stop these types of predatory practices that ultimately hurt black folks. And again, this is one of those examples of why you should be paying attention to every level of government, because there is a role here for government to play to, again, crack down on this type of behavior. All right, y'all, we are on to the party pooper and party starter parts of the show. Turn out the lights. The party's over. The party is over. Close the gates. What? All right. Party's over. Everyone go home. Are you sure you want to invite this party pooper to poop on your party? I'm the party pooper. You know, I am so tired of talking about Trump on the podcast. And if you're a regular listener, you might have noticed he has not been as much of a topic these days. That has been very intentional. But I do have to include him, unfortunately, in this episode because of something he said, or at least something he posts on his social media platform. So Trump has long held a grudge against Mitch McConnell. That's the Republican minority leader from Kentucky. And so Trump just the other day posted something on Truth Social, that's his social platform, about McConnell and about McConnell's wife, who was Chinese and who also, by the way, served in the Trump administration, uh, And it was just really sick and crazy what he said. So take a listen to this interview with CNN anchor Dana Bash and Rick Scott, who was a Republican senator from Florida. Senator, I know you're understandably very focused on what is happening uh, in your state of Florida. But I have to ask you about what appears to be a threat by former President Trump against your colleague, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. Uh, Trump said, quote, he has a death wish for supporting Democratic sponsored bills. He also mocked McConnell's wife and his own former transportation secretary, Elaine Chao, as, quote, China loving and Coco Chow. You're a member of the Senate GOP leadership. Are you okay with this? Well, look, I, I can never talk about, respond to why anybody else says what they said. But here's what is the way I looked at it is I think, you know, what the president is saying is, you know, we've there's been a lot of money spent over the last two years. Uh, we've got to make sure we don't keep caving to Democrats. It's causing unbelievable inflation and causing more and more debt. Um, as you know, you know, the president likes, likes to give people nicknames. You can ask him how he came up uh, with the nickname. Uh, I'm sure he has a nickname for me. Um, but. You know, here's what I know. We we got to watch how we spend our money. We got to stop this inflation. Um, and, you know, and I, don't, I don't condone violence and I hope any, no one else condones violence. Nicknames are one thing, but this this is this appears racist. 
Is that okay? It's never, ever okay to be a racist. Um, um, it's in the and then now here, this exchange, again with Dana Bash and with Scott Jennings, who is a former advisor to Mitch McConnell. Yeah, it's hard to know where to start with the assassination instructions or the blatant racism. I mean, if you read that whole thing out loud, if you were on the street and you heard someone muttering that on the street corner, you wouldn't say, hmm, let's hand this person the presidency or the Republican nomination for president. You'd say, call 911 because it sounds like an unhinged, deranged person has gotten loose and is out on the street and may be a danger to themselves and others. This is outrageous. It's beyond the pale. Every Republican ought to be able to say so. This is not good for the party. It's not good for him. Dana then goes on to ask Scott, Scott Jennings, if he was satisfied with what Rick Scott, the Republican senator, said in his back and forth conversation with Dana Bash. Take a listen to this part of the conversation. Satisfied with what Rick Scott said? No, of course not. And I don't know whether he was unprepared for it or he hadn't seen it, but there's something very easy about this. And what's easy is to say, this is not good. It's not helpful. It's not good politically. It's not good personally. This is bad for the party, bad for the country, and it's not becoming of a former president and somebody who wants to have the job again. Yeah, I just fundamentally don't understand why more Republicans just won't do this. And, and I get, I mean, I, I get it that he's, Scott Jennings is not a candidate. He's never been a candidate for elected office. He's an advisor. But despite that, if only these elected officials, whether they're former or currently in office, would just say, hey, listen, I like Trump's policies, but this type of rhetoric, I cannot condone. Like, that's it. That's all you have to say. But unfortunately, it just seems impossible for Republicans to just call this kind of ridiculous rhetoric out. party starter. Oh uh, gosh, I don't know if I really have one, but maybe I will say that you listeners are the party starter. If you stop what you're doing right now, check your voter registration status. And if you're not registered, get registered today, right now. It's very short. Take the time Go to sos.ga.gov. That's sos.ga.gov. Log in. Make sure that you're, if you're already registered, make sure that your information is up to date so you have zero problems trying to go vote when you decide to go vote. If you're not registered, again, take the time to register to vote. Even if you're not sure if you want to vote in this election, it's better to go ahead and be registered. And then if you do want to, and I encourage you to, you at least have everything in place so that you can indeed go vote. All right, y'all, that is today's show. I hope to see you in person. 
when we do our watch party, we're going to again do a watch party on the Stacey Abrams versus Brian Kemp election debate. It's going to be, I'm sure, spicy. Stacey is a great debater. I think Kemp is going to come out really strong and we'll see what happens. So join us Monday, October 17th at the Russell Center for Innovation. It's on, it's in Castleberry. We'll have food, we'll have drinks, we'll have games, a live pod. We'll talk about uh, the debate, what you think, who won, who lost, what didn't you hear that you wanted the candidates to talk about. We'll cover all of that. All right. As always, thank you so much for tuning in uh, and for give us, uh, giving us some love. Don't forget to like, subscribe, share the podcast with your friends and family. And until next time, have a great one.